blessed Sabbath to all of us. And thank you once again, Pastor James, for this opportunity to be able to share the Word of God with all of us here in ASDEC Church. Now, of course, you know that I'm, I'm here for the fourth or the fifth time, actually. And so for most of you who knows me, um, I bring the greeting from your sister church in Balasti Road. And they are having their worship right now as well. And before we are going to our exploration of the Word of God, I would like to invite us to bow our head for a word of prayer. Father God, as we come to explore the Bible as it is, I would like to ask that your Holy Spirit will allow us to be inspired, to find the gem, the treasure that you have allowed us to receive. And may your word speak to our heart that we'll be able to be another missionaries for you. For this is our prayer, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've mentioned that I've been here before. And so for those of us who are aware of how I do my sermon, usually I will pick up a passage, and then we will explore it together. But today, I would like to bring another angle of the way we are going to explore the Word of God. And that is because I've, I discovered there is this interesting pattern that seems to be consistent throughout the Old and New Testaments. And today we will explore this pattern together in understanding how God sees us as the church. And so we have to start from the very beginning, and that is in the book of Genesis. So for those of us who are in church right now, and for all of us who are watching our live streaming service at ASDAC Church, I would like to invite you to open your Bible into the book of Genesis and let us look upon the first three chapters of this book. Now, as you notice, Genesis chapter 1 elaborates the creation story in such details that you wonder what were involved in that story. Now, the interesting part is this. It seems God spent at least six days in establishing this garden that is so beautiful so wonderful, filled with all the wonderful animals, plants, and everything. And as you look upon the way it, the Bible expressed the story of creation, it mentioned at the end of every days of creation that God sees everything and He was happy. He was satisfied. Depends on what type of Bible version that you use. But as we look upon the last Story, the last part of creation, and that is the creation of human being. The Bible mentioned that God sees all those things, and he's felt very, very good. It's almost like an expression of superlatives in its original language. It's saying that God was satisfied, but when it comes to the creation of human being, he was extremely satisfied. And then we got the story of the fall in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Where in that story, we finally came to the reality of the world that we are living today. That Adam and Eve decided to go against God's commandment. They took the fruit and they fall into sin. Now the question is, do you notice that after Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden is almost completely gone from the recording of the Bible? It is only being mentioned a bit in the book of Ezekiel. And that's it. And you can imagine it in this way. God created the Garden of Eden 
in such a way, it's so elaborated, it took one whole chapter to describe it. But immediately after the fall, it seems the garden is no longer the interest of God. The story focused from the garden into the people who fall into sin. And that was Adam and Eve. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the story focused on what God will do for Adam and Eve. It's no longer about the garden. It's no longer about the plants. It's no longer about the animal. But God immediately focuses attention in how to save this race called humanity that had fallen into sin. Now, as we look upon the book of Genesis, it is not only end in the book, in the story of creation. Now, let's move to Genesis chapter 6. And in the book of Genesis chapter 6, you notice similar pattern. Now, we have a new family by the name of Noah. And Noah was described as this perfect man, blameless in the eyes of God. And then afterward, we had this elaborated description of the ark. God commanded Noah to build this ark in, in such a way. There is a specific dimension of the ark. God commanded him to build it in such a way to bring all the animals inside. And the beginning of the story seems to focus upon this ark. But as you look upon the story afterward, after the whole uh, flood story ends, do you notice that there is no mentioning about the ark anymore? But rather now God focused on the family, which now became the next vessel of God's salvation plan for humanity. And so again, it seems like the pattern continues from the story of creation to the story of Noah. It seems like at first, the focus of the story is in the, in the story of the ark. But as we look deeper into the story, apparently the focus is not on the ark, but rather in the family of Noah that became the vessel of God's salvation plan. And then we had the story of Abraham. We need to jump fast into the book of Genesis and look upon the way God described the promise that he gave to Abraham. So I would like to invite you to open your Bible once again in the book of Genesis chapter 17, verse 4 and 5. Now, in the Hebrew literature, we know that the first thing that will appear in the text is usually the most important one. And so you look upon the way God gave his promise to Abraham. Was God promised Abraham wealth or prosperity or a specific land that he gave to Abraham? No. The first thing that God said to him was what? He said that I shall make your children as many as possible. You became the father of all faith. Again, it's focused on the people, on the descendant, on some group of people that will be this vessel that God will bring and send them to, for a mission. And this, this pattern seems to be consistent all the way to the book of Exodus. Now, in the book of Exodus chapter 6 verse 7, so today, as you see, as I mentioned in the beginning, we're not going to focus on a specific passage like uh, what I used to do in ASDEC. But we will jump from chapter to chapter, books to books, to see this interesting pattern on how God deals with his people. And in the book of Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, you notice that God's promise once again, that he said to the Israelites, what? I will make you 
my people. He's not saying that you will occupy Egypt. I will make Moses the new king of Egypt. I will reverse the way you used to be the slave of this land. Now under the leadership of Moses, you will be the leader of this land. No. But rather God's word to the Israelite was, I will make you my people. And as you look upon the whole book of Exodus, basically Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, this book is basically telling what God will do. An elaborated effort that seems to be so much in details that God needs to tell them, hey, this is the way you have to eat. This is the way you have to worship. This is the way you have to offer your sacrifice. This is the way you have to deal with problems. This this has to be the way you are dealing with those who are sick and so on and so forth. All this elaborated system that is being established in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus seems to point out that God is so interested in the people that he had released from slavery in Egypt. And then we entered into the time when finally they has established as a nation in a specific territories that God has given to them. But yet, as you look upon the focus of God, it is always focusing on the people that he has chosen to be him, to be his. As you notice the way God deals with the Israelites, every time they are going against God in what? In worshiping another God, God was so angry and jealous. The Bible used this marital language, jealousy. God is unsatisfied with you. You are looking for another God. It's all in the form of relationship. And God seems to to continue to focus his attention on his people. The system of the nation changed from judges to kings. But God still said the same way to them. You are my people. I'm interested in you. I want to fix you. I want to redeem you and so on and so forth. That even when they are going against God in such a difficult way, that God has to send prophet after prophet after prophet. If, you, if we can summarize the whole story of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament, it's basically about God sending a prophet or prophets and telling them, Please tell my people they need to fix themselves. And this pattern of God's interest in people goes all the way until the exile. That they were in a foreign land. They were crying and they said, Lord, we want to go home. We want to go back to our land. We want to be in the place where you used to stay with us. And God said to them, yes, but never forget that you are my people wherever you are. That, they, that he sent prophets, queens, and people to maintain these people in the exile place, to keep reminding them that they are God's people. And as the kingdom divided, they went to exile, it is still the people that God cares the most. And as you look upon the New Testament, it is the same pattern all the way through. When Jesus came to this earth, it was the people that became his main interest. In the time when the Jews lost their focus, as you look upon the story in the gospel, 
They thought that Jesus wants to establish a new kingdom of the Israelites. He will be this promised king that will come and repel the Roman invaders. He will be the one that will establish the new kingdom of Israel. He is the one that will restore the glory of David. He will be the one that will reaffirm the true God in the temple. But then Jesus' interest was totally opposite of that. Jesus was interested in the poor, in the needy, in those sinners. He spent time sitting with them, eating the sinner's house. And this was something that the Jews of his time were so shocked. And probably the one that made them so angry was the story when Jesus mentioned that he has this short debate with the Pharisees and he said what? Demolish the temple and in three days I shall rebuild it. And, you know, put our mind and put our place in the eyes of these Jews. Now someone, stranger, someone that don't even have the respect from the people, suddenly come and said that your most respected church, your most respected building, the place where you come to worship God, destroy it. And within three days, I can build it. What's so big deal about it? And put ourselves in that position and hearing that word of Jesus, you'll be very offended. You know, you, 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 you take pride upon this temple. This is the only national symbol that you may take pride because everything else has been taken by the Roman invaders. They have tried so hard to change your identity. They want you to adopt into the Roman way of government and so on and so forth. And the temple is the way you can identify yourself and saying that this is who I am as a Jew. If we can put it in the Singaporean context, probably it's about someone or maybe Jesus come here and said, you know, demolish the Merlion statue at Marina Bay. You know, every Singaporean will take pride that that is the symbol of our nation. And this guy said, just destroy it. No, no, no big deal. It's just a statue. What? And that is exactly the heart of the people of Jesus' time, that they were so upset about it. In the book of Mark chapter 14, verse 58, it became the reason Jesus was accused of inciting riots among the people of the Jews. It became the testimony that they brought to crucify Jesus. That this man has insulted our national pride. That he told us that he can demolish our temple. And he has no respect for the roots, for the culture, for the origin of us. The Jews were so distracted with the pride of their nation. That when Jesus came and sent the message from God. Saying that my interest is the people. They were so angry. They want to kill the man who said that. That as it comes to the book of Acts, as you notice, where was the interest of God? Again, the people. That the first few chapters of Acts talks about how this community of believers that has been established through the teaching of Jesus and now going to be ministered by the Holy Spirit that will empower the apostles to lead this group of people, they have come to this level where, once again, the focus is where? The people. The Holy Spirit didn't tell the apostle that what they need to do is to raise funds to build a church. 
It is not to solicit money in order for them to be able to buy a land so they can stay together as a people. It is not about having all these things in terms of material possession. But rather, as you look upon the book of Acts chapter 2 and 3, they sell whatever they have and share it with who? The people. Because for them, the attention and the focus is the people. Because they have witnessed it from the eyes that they have seen. That in the heart of Jesus is his people and not infrastructure. In the heart of Jesus, it is not so much about equipment and systems and infrastructure and building, but the people. And by now, I think all of us can guess already where I am going with this. But to make sure that none, none of us misunderstand me, I must clarify that I'm not against organization. I'm not against building infrastructure. I'm not against establishing a physical presence as a way to preach the gospel. But we have come to that moment in life to ask this question. When all these things gone, will we still can call ourselves as the church? Now this pandemic had been a powerful test for many churches. We have been forced to realign the way we do worship service. We have been tested in such a way that we are forced to ask this question. For now, many of us have shifted our worship service to online-based service. Or I like what Pastor James said, hybrid service, where we have a physical service while the rest are attending the church online. But we have to still ask this question. Are we simply the church because of our physical presence, because of our online service, or it is because we are the people of God? Because I had a very unexpected sermon illustration. It happened last night. Uh, just before I went to sleep, I, I somehow just had this, this thought to check my phone. And when I checked my phone, there was a notification mentioned there we detected that someone trying to access your account and the address there mentioned is not Singapore. And I was like, oh, oh, someone is hacking into my account. So just before I went to sleep, I have to rush and check all my email accounts and change every single password there. Because apparently someone is attempting to hack my email account. Now, I'm not trying to say that online service is, um, is going to be dangerous. But imagine this. If our live streaming service today is going to be hacked, will you still can say, oh, ayo, now physical service cannot. Online service also cannot hack. Are you still the church though? Am I still the church when even there is no more physical service, neither online service available for me? Can I still call myself the church? Because I pray that we will still have this confidence to say, yes, we are still the church. Whether we are attending the service physically, whether we are attending the service online, even when the, the, the online service got hacked, I can still be the church. Because there is this problem that I find 
quite rampant among modern churches of today. It seems to be against the biblical evidence that we have, we have seen just now. Oftentimes, we got mixed up between the mission and the tools for mission. We think that the tools of mission is the mission itself. And we, are, we will do whatever it takes to ensure that the tools will remain existent even when it has to compromise the mission. That even sometimes I have these very sad comments that I heard that the tools, that the mission became the reason for the tools. Have you ever heard that statement before? Oh, pastor, we need to evangelize so we can have more churches in Singapore. We need to give Bible studies so we will have more people in church. We need to raise funds so we can have a better infrastructure. We have a better camera. We have a better sound system and so on and so forth. We are so much focusing on the, on the tools. Forgetting that the mission can go without any tools at all. That we, our purpose has reversed in such a way that now we are so much focusing on the tools. Now, again, I have to be very careful upon giving this statement because, you know, some people may misunderstand and say, Oh, Pastor, are you against live streaming service? Is it? You're against good, good uh, sound system? Is it? You're against um, online services? No, 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 no. But I would like to recalibrate our attention. I would like to recalibrate our worldview. To think and to have to ask that uncomfortable question, if there will be no building in Singapore to accommodate us as a church, will still be, will we still call ourselves as the church? When we don't have a facilities to, 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 to bring the gospel the way it's so sophisticated in Singapore, will we still be able to have this passion to say that we are the church regardless of anything? Because the danger is this, the moment we are so established in making sure that all the tools are working properly, we will spend a lot of time in maintaining the tools. And honestly speaking, and this is not something that uh, because of I have a personal um, message of anything, but sometimes I think we have employed too many pastors in Singapore. And these pastors are simply working what? maintaining churches they have to make sure that the aircon is working they have to make sure the camera is running they have to make sure that people will come they have to make sure that attendance is taken they have to make sure that no one is missing the announcement they have to make sure that all this thing is running well they have no time for evangelism they have no time for mission they have no time to train members in order for them to be equipped to bring the gospel outside because now the work is more about what? Maintaining the tools. It's about making sure that everything runs well. That sometimes I'm so tempted to think, how, if it, how it's going to be if we employ lesser pastors, maybe one pastor's ministering to two, three churches, and so the maintenance goes to where? To everyone. Because at the end of the day, you and I are the church. If the aircon not running properly, of course, our natural, uh, our, our natural mindset is call the pastor. But once there is no more pastors, what should we do? Call everyone else. 
And we are going to have everyone trying to make sure that the aircon in the church were running well. And so where's the pastor? Oh, pastor, you, you need to work well. We need to put our pastors to bring the gospels together with everyone in the church. To inspire everyone to bring the gospel to all the people in Singapore. Because, like it or not, this is the, the thing that I come to the to conclusion today. And that, e, and, and that is, church is not the pew that we fill. It is not a room that we fill. It is not the building that we build. It is not even the system that we organize and establish. Church, as the Bible has mentioned it over and over again, from the time of creation until the time of recreation in the book of Revelation is about the people and the people alone. That it is in the heart of God, you and I is the center of his attention. When Jesus comes again in his second coming, he will not ask, where is Asdak Church? I want to make sure that Asdak Church as a building still remains there. But in his heart, he wants to know whether every one of us will be encountering him and said that, Lord, finally you are here. He will not ask, oh, where is Balastir Church? You know, we, we always have this uh, interesting comment. Because uh, for those of us who do not know, Balastir Church is one of the national heritage um, property of Singapore. So we cannot do anything over the building. It is basically a national treasure. So, yet, I have this thought over and over again. When Jesus comes again, he will not go to Balestir Church and say, Well, your church is a natural heritage of Singapore. I shall preserve it. No. It will be all gone, just like every other sinful things on this earth. But he wants to know where is the people inside that church. And so today, as we look upon it, I just like to bring this one simple message to all of us. And that message is this. You and I are the church. We are the church. We are the one in the center of God's attentions and desire. That means what? We carry the church wherever we are. When you are at work, you are the church. When you are studying, you are the church. When you are doing everything in your life, you are the church. It is not that we have to come here together and then we will be the church starting from here. It's a sacred duty. Goes beyond attending service. Goes beyond leading song. Goes beyond setting up children's story. Goes beyond being a good receptionist. Goes beyond giving Bible studies. But rather that every single part of our life we will be the church. Because we don't go to church. You know, we, we like to say, which church that you go to? If you are the church, we carry the church wherever we are. So when people ask you from now on, which church that you go on? Uh, you may have a different answer. You may say, well, I'm part of the Aztec church wherever it may be. Because you and I are the church. It is not an easy task, but I pray and I believe that we can start to do our part to be that church. We, you and I, are the church. 
It means we don't have to start to witness from SDEC Church. From wherever you are right now, for those of us who are watching our live streaming service, you don't have to say, oh, I'm, I'm watching a live streaming service of SDEC Church. You are the church. From wherever you are right now, whether you're in Canada, whether you're in the Philippines, whether you're in Indonesia, whether you are in the United States of America, wherever you are, you are the church. And let's start be the church from wherever you are. Because we don't need a place, we don't need infrastructure to call ourselves as the church. So church, what will you do today? If we are so precious in the eyes of God, if we are carrying the sacred duty that He has established ever since the time of Adam and Eve, all the way to the time of the end, where will you go? God has called you and God has called me. And let us be the church of today. Let us stand up and find that we are indeed so precious in the eyes of God that you and I has this duty to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ from wherever we are. And as we are going to reflect upon all this message through our last song that the song leader will sing right now, I would like to invite you to find your place, not only in this physical building that we are attending, but in the heart of Jesus the one that has established all of us as the church.